I was on jury duty this week. I'm not sure anyone really loves doing jury duty. It is, after all, called a duty. Still, it was, it was a good reminder for me of Judaism's insistence of the supremacy and rule of law. Judaism insists that there can be no liberty without law and no freedom without obligation. The exodus from Egypt was not simply about slavery. Had it only been about breaking the yoke of Pharaoh, the story would have ended upon the destruction of the Egyptian army. Instead, after a modest celebration on the other side, marked by dancing and singing and timbrel pounding, Moses marched the Israelites directly to Sinai, the mountain of law. That was the point. Not to stop at the other side of the Red Sea, but to march directly to Sinai. According to the Torah, they stayed there under the mountain for 13 months and 20 days, first receiving the Ten Commandments, and in next week's Torah portion and weeks to come, dozens and dozens of additional laws. That's all they did there for 13 months and 20 days. By the time Moses completed delivering all of God's laws, 13 months and 20 days later, the people had had enough. According to Jewish tradition, when it came time to leave Sinai and begin the journey to the Promised Land, the Israelites marched for three days nonstop. They didn't stop for three days. According to the Midrash, they behaved like school children who run from the school after the last class as fast as they can so that the headmaster won't call them back for another class. Now, like all my previous stints on jury duty, this one too was mostly just hanging around. You all, you, you all have done jury duty, right? So finally, after a three-and-a-half-hour wait at around 12.30, from 9 o'clock to 12.30, 66 of us were ushered into a courtroom to be sworn into a criminal case, from which 12 individuals were to be selected as jurors. It was the first time I actually got so close to being a juror. It took 10 minutes to be sworn in, and then it was time for another two-hour break for lunch. Indeed. The wheels of justice grind slowly. At about 3 o'clock, six hours into the day, the judge asked the jurors whether anyone felt disqualified from serving. At that point, it became clear to me why there were 66 of us for a 12-person jury. Hands immediately shot up. Now, some excuses seemed legitimate to me, family or work-related or travel. One juror said that due to past experiences, he wouldn't be capable of believing the testimony of the police. Another juror said exactly the opposite, that they would be inclined to believe the police over the evidence connected to the defense. Both were sent back to the jury pool for another case, preferably a civil case, according to the judge. Other jurors, well, I burst out laughing when one woman told the judge that she needed to be excused because she doesn't believe in courts, period. <laughs> Who advised her to say that to get out of jury duty? 
The judge, who seemed to me like she had heard every excuse under the sun in her many years on the bench, and wearing a worn and forlorn expression, and suppressing what looked to me was a feeling of disdain, she didn't allow that juror to go home either. She sent her back to the jury pool for a civil, uh, civil case. And my guess is if the judge had had her way, she would have required that jury to spend a week doing jury duty, going from case to case and judge to judge, explaining why she doesn't believe in the court system at all. Finally, 20 jurors, not me, were called to sit in the jury box and questioned by the judge about their professions, their educational degrees, and whether they could be impartial. By the time that was over, even before the attorneys had a chance to question the potential jurors, the day was done. <laughs> and everyone was ordered to return the next day at 10.30 a.m., where there was more waiting outside the courtroom for uh, an hour and a half until about noon. When the 66 of us first entered the courtrooms the day before, all the actors were present. The judge, the defendant, two translators since the defendant didn't understand English, his attorney, two prosecuting attorneys, a stenographer, and most notably, several police officers and other security personnel. It was quite intimidating, even for me, and I didn't do anything wrong. I looked hard at the defendant and immediately felt sorry for him. Maybe that's one reason prosecutors never select me. Perhaps they sense my instinctive and innate compassion for the accused. He might have very well committed the crime he was accused of, but at the moment, he seemed to me all alone amidst this deceptively innocent-looking display of overwhelming coercive state power. And the lonely, lonely defendant didn't even understand English. By the next morning, he had obviously agreed to some kind of plea bargain because after another 90-minute delay, when we entered the courtroom, neither the defendant or his translators were there, and within five minutes, the judge dismissed all of us. I think the display of marching 66 jurors into the courtroom the previous afternoon sobered the defendant and focused his attention in a manner not previously contemplated by him when it was just a few people talking legalese before the jury came in. He was probably, when he saw those 66 jurors, and by the end of the day, he was probably advised by his attorney, take the deal now. I remembered the story of a defendant who stoutly maintained his innocence during a tedious four-day trial. On the fourth day, he pleaded guilty. The judge angrily inquired, why didn't you plead guilty right at the start and save all of us this time and trouble and expense? Honest judge, the defendant explained, I was convinced I was innocent until I heard all the evidence against me. So I think just the sight of the 66 of us 
convinced the defendant that it was time to get the best deal possible. Now, since Wednesday, I've been contemplating the courtroom scene. There's no such thing as perfect justice. Everything human is filled with human imperfection. Every step of this system is rife with human fallibilities because human beings are fallible. Leaving aside our frailties of judgment and intellect, everything about the pursuit of justice is dependent upon the participants' commitment. All of these actors, every last one of them, it's dependent on everyone's commitment to do their duty to the system. It's like this week's Parsha, right, Stella? It's called the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. It's a duty. Their truthfulness, their honesty, their integrity, their honor, upon these the whole system depends. One crooked juror, one dishonest judge, one dishonorable witness, one overly zealous prosecutor are enough to thwart the whole system. Practically every day in this country there are prisoners freed after years, sometimes decades of wrongful, wrongful conviction and incarceration. The entire justice system and so many other of the central institutions of American life are dependent upon the people within those institutions. Character is key. It always was. It always will be. Even in politics. Since we are in an election year, it's proper to remind ourselves to maintain and insist upon high expectations from politicians, despite our cynicism. Whatever policies you support, remember, everything can be undone if the leaders of our central institutions of freedom are dishonorable. Thomas Jefferson ended the Declaration of Independence with these words. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Honor is the last word of the founding and foundational text of American freedom. The last word of what it means to be an American. Honor is a moral, not a legal term. But everything about the justice system hinges on the honor and integrity of the dozens of people invested in every case and in every process. One dishonorable person can put a spoke in the wheel of justice. The word honor is also given prominence in the Torah, Judaism's founding and foundational text. Right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, the Torah states, Kabed et avicha et imecha. Kabed, 
Honor your father and your mother. The word kabed can also mean heaviness, weightiness, a burden. Granting honor, behaving honorably, holding ourselves to the highest standards of decency and integrity. When all around us people act dishonorably, it's difficult. It is a weighty, heavy burden. But there can be no freedom without it. Benjamin Franklin wrote, a nation of dishonorable men and women will never be free. Only a virtuous people is capable of freedom. Thank you.